Jesus, our Savior and Friend. The Book of Luke by John M. Fowler Edited for audio by the Ambassador Group Exploration 12 Jesus in Jerusalem Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. Luke chapter 19, verse 41, New King James Version The last week of Jesus' earthly life unfolded in Jerusalem. What tumultuous events marked that week, too? The triumphal entry, Jesus weeping over the indifferent city, the cleansing of the temple, the scheming and the plotting against him, the pathos of the Last Supper and the agony of Gethsemane, the mockery of a trial, the crucifixion, and finally, the resurrection. Never before and never since has any city witnessed so critical a progression of history, one that brought the cosmic conflict between good and evil to its climax, even though no one but Jesus understood the significance of what was unfolding. Jesus had passed through Jerusalem several times in his life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record Jesus as an adult visiting Jerusalem, though mostly during the Passion Week, although other appearances of Jesus in Jerusalem are well known. The infant Jesus being brought to the temple. Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 28. The debate of the twelve-year-old in the temple. Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 50. The tempter taking Jesus to the highest point of the temple. Luke chapter 4, verses 9 through 13. It is the closing week of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem that occupies the special attention of the gospel writers. And that is what we will focus on in this exploration. Jesus in Jerusalem. The Triumphal Entry He was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth. He taught, preached, and healed throughout Galilee, Samaria, Judea, and Perea. But one city held his constant focus, Jerusalem. Jesus steadfastly set his face to go to the city. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. New King James Version. His entry into the city marked the most dramatic and crucial week in world history. The week began with Christ's kingly march into the city and saw his death on the cross, by which we who were enemies were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. New King James Version. Listen to Luke chapter 19 verses 28 through 40 in the Amplified Bible. And after saying these things, Jesus went on ahead of them, going up to Jerusalem. When he came near Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the village yonder. There, as you go in, you will find a donkey's colt tied, on which no man has ever yet sat. Loose it, 
and bring it here. If anybody asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, Because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were loosening the colt, its owner said to them, Alarmed, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. Then they threw their garments over the colt and set Jesus upon it. And as he rode along, the people kept spreading their garments on the road. As he was approaching the city, at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to rejoice and to praise God, extolling him exultantly and loudly for all the mighty miracles and works of power that they had witnessed, crying out, Blessed, celebrated with praises, is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, freedom from all the distresses that are experienced as the result of sin, and glory, majesty, and splendor in the highest heaven. And some of the Pharisees from the throng said to Jesus, Teacher, reprove your disciples. He replied, I tell you that if these keep silent, the very stones will cry out. Can you imagine the excitement of the disciples? They must surely have thought that at this time King Jesus would ascend to an earthly throne at Jerusalem, the throne of King David. What important lesson about false expectations can you take from this account? When Jesus was born, wise men from the east came knocking at the doors of Jerusalem, asking that poignant question, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, New King James Version. And now, a few days before the cross, as his disciples and the multitudes thronged the city, an acclaim burst across Jerusalem's sky. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke chapter 19, verse 38, New King James Version. This amazing scene fulfilled prophecy in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, New King James Version. Yet, Jesus knew that this march of history, which began with the shouts of Hosanna, would soon wind up on Golgotha, where he would utter those triumphant words, It is finished! Though it was all according to God's eternal plan, his disciples were so caught up in the traditions and teachings and expectations of their own time and culture that they completely missed his earlier warnings about what would take place and what it all meant. Christ spoke to them, but they didn't listen. Or maybe they listened, but what he said went so much against what they expected that they blocked it out. How can you make sure you aren't doing the same thing when it comes to biblical truth? 
Jerusalem, cleansing the temple. It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. After the triumphal entry, during which Jesus wept over Jerusalem, the first thing he did was to go to the temple. We will now listen to three accounts of Jesus cleansing the temple, told by Dr. Luke, former tax collector Levi, and the young Mark. As you hear each account, try to detect important lessons from what Jesus did. Now let's listen to the three accounts from the Amplified Bible. Luke chapter 19, verses 45 through 48. Then he went into the temple enclosure and began to drive out those who were selling, telling them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a cave of robbers. And he continued to teach day after day in the temple porches and courts. The chief priests and the scribes and the leading men of the people were seeking to put him to death. But they did not discover anything they could do, for all the people hung upon his words and stuck by him. Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 17. And Jesus went into the temple, whole temple enclosure, and drove out all who bought and sold in the sacred place, and he turned over the four-footed tables of the money changers and the chairs of those who sold doves. He said to them, The scripture says, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the porches and courts of the temple, and he cured them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the boys and the girls and the youths and the maidens crying out in the porches and courts of the temple, Hosanna, O be propitious, graciously inclined to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus replied to them, Yes, have you never read, Out of the mouths of babes and unweaned infants, you have made provided perfect praise? And leaving them, he departed from the city and went out to Bethany and lodged there. Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. And they came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple area, the porches and courts, and began to drive out those who sold and bought in the temple area. And he overturned the four-footed tables of the money changers and the seats of those who dealt in doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry any household equipment through the temple enclosure, thus making the temple area a shortcut traffic lane. And he taught and said to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have turned it into a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard of this, and kept seeking some way to destroy him. For they feared him, because the entire multitude was struck with astonishment at his teaching. 
And when evening came on, he and his disciples, as accustomed, went out of the city. What important lessons did you hear in these accounts of what was unacceptable to Jesus in the place of worship? Add to those lessons Paul's counsel in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21. In him, the whole structure is joined, bound, welded together harmoniously, and it continues to rise, grow, increase into a holy temple in the Lord, a sanctuary dedicated, consecrated, and sacred to the presence of the Lord. What would it take for you to experience that kind of nurturing community? All four Gospels describe Jesus' cleansing of the temple. While John speaks of the first cleansing in his Gospel narrative, John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25, taking place during Jesus' visit to the temple at the Passover of A.D. 28, the other Gospels narrate the second cleansing at the end of Jesus' ministry, this time at the Passover of A.D. 31. Thus, the two cleansings of the temple provide a parenthesis to the ministry of Jesus, showing how much he cared for the sanctity of the temple and its services, and how strategically he asserted his messianic mission and authority. His actions in the temple, especially the second time, which came just before his death, present an interesting question. Knowing that he was soon to die... Knowing that the temple and its services would soon become null and void, Jesus nevertheless drove out those who were profaning it with their wares. Why did he not simply leave it alone in its own corruption, especially since it would not only become unnecessary, but within a generation would be destroyed? Though we are not given an answer, it's most likely because it was still God's house, and it was still the place where the plan of salvation was revealed. In a sense, one could argue that, with his upcoming death, the temple and its services served an important function in that they were the place to help faithful Jews come to understand just who Jesus was and what his death on the cross really meant. That is, the temple, which depicted the entire plan of salvation, could help many come to see in Jesus, as Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 says, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Faithful. Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 19 in the Amplified Bible say, Then he began to relate to the people this parable, this story to figuratively portray what he had to say. A man planted a vineyard and leased it to some vine dressers and went into another country for a long stay. When the right season came, he sent a bond servant to the tenants that they might give him his part of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat, thrashed him, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent still another servant, 
Him they also beat, thrashed, and dishonored, and insulted him disgracefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one they wounded and threw out of the vineyard. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. It is probable that they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they argued among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. So they drove him out of the vineyard and killed him. What, then, will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and utterly put an end to those tenants, and will give the vineyard to others. When they, the chief priests, and the scribes, and the elders, heard this, they said, May it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is the meaning of this that is written? The very stone which the builders rejected has become the chief stone of the corner, the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken in pieces, but upon whomever it falls, it will crush him, winnow him, and scatter him as dust. The scribes and the chief priests desired and tried to find a way to arrest him at that very hour, but they were afraid of the people, for they discerned that he had related this parable against them. The parable of the wicked vine dressers gives us a lesson in redemptive history. The center of that history is God and his continual love for erring sinners. Although the parable was specifically addressed to the Jewish leaders of his time, they knew he had spoken this parable against them, verse 19, New King James Version, it is timeless in its reach. It applies to every generation, every congregation, and every person on whom God's love and trust have been poured out and from whom God expects a faithful return. We are today's tenants, and we can draw from this parable some lessons on history as God views it. How does the principle taught in this parable apply to us? if we make the same mistakes as those in the parable. Instead of giving to God the fruits of love and fidelity, the tenants of God's vineyard forsook and failed God. But God, as the owner of the vineyard, sent servant after servant, verses 10 through 12, prophet after prophet, Jeremiah chapter 35, verse 15, in persistent love, to woo and win his people to their responsibility of stewardship. Each prophet, though, became a victim of rejection. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Acts chapter 7, verse 52, New King James Version. Divine history is a long love story. Tragedy will raise its head again and again, but glory will eventually triumph. Resurrection must follow the cross. The stone that was rejected is now the cornerstone of a great temple that will house the commonwealth of God, where all the redeemed, the rich and the poor, the Jew and the Gentile, the male and the female, will live as one people. They shall walk in the eschatological vineyard, 
and enjoy its fruit forever. We might not have living prophets today to persecute, but we are just as capable of rejecting God's messengers as were people of old. On a personal level, how can you make sure that you, who have been called to give the Lord the fruit of the vineyard, do not reject these messengers and their messages? God versus Caesar. So they watched for an opportunity to ensnare him, and sent spies who pretended to be upright, honest, and sincere, that they might lay hold of something he might say, so as to turn him over to the control and authority of the governor. They asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you show no partiality to anyone, but teach the way of God honestly and in truth. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he recognized and understood their cunning and unscrupulousness, and said to them, Show me a denarius, a coin. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So they could not in the presence of the people take hold of anything he said to turn against him. But marveling at his reply, they were silent. That was Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 26 in the Amplified Bible. How do you take what Jesus taught and apply it to your own situation in whatever country you live? During the time of Jesus, taxation by Rome was a volatile issue. Around A.D. 6, according to Josephus, Judas the Galilean, a revolutionary leader, declared that paying taxes to Caesar was treason against God. The issue, along with several messianic claims and aspirants, set off periodic anti-Roman revolts. Against such a sensitive background, the question put before Jesus about whether it was lawful to pay taxes revealed the ulterior motive of the interrogators. To answer that it was lawful would have placed Jesus on the side of Rome, showing that he could not be the king of the Jews, as declared by the crowds at his entry into Jerusalem. To say no would have meant that Jesus was following the Galilean mood and declaring the Roman rule unlawful, opening himself to the charge of treason. They had hoped to put Jesus in a bind from which he couldn't escape. Jesus, though, saw right through them. He pointed to the image of Caesar on a coin and pronounced his verdict. Render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Living under Caesar, whose currency is used for day-to-day -day necessities, has its obligation to Caesar. But then there is another obligation, a greater one, 
which rises from the fact that we are made in the image of God and that to Him we owe our ultimate allegiance. Christ's reply was no evasion, but a candid answer to the question. He declared that since they were living under the protection of the Roman power, they should render to that power the support it claimed, so long as this did not conflict with a higher duty. But while peaceably subject to the laws of the land, they should at all times give their first allegiance to God. The book is entitled The Desire of Ages. The author is Ellen G. White. You will find those words on page 602. What are ways you can continue to be a good citizen in whatever country you live, while at the same time knowing that, as Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10 affirms, your true citizenship exists in a city whose builder and maker is God. Supper. And they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they made ready the Passover supper. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly and intensely desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall eat it no more until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide and distribute it among yourselves. For I say unto you, that from now on, I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine at all, until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in like manner he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament or covenant ratified in my blood, which is shed, poured out for you. We just heard Luke chapter 22, verses 13 through 20. What is the significance of the Lord's Supper taking place at the Passover? Jesus founded the Lord's Supper against the historic context of the Passover feast. The Passover setting underscores human impotence in contrast to God's great power. It was as impossible for Israel to free itself from Egyptian bondage as it is for us to free ourselves from the consequences of sin. Liberation came from God as a gift of His love and grace. And this is the lesson Israel was to teach its children from generation to generation. Listen to Exodus chapter 12, verses 26 and 27. When your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt, 
when he slew the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Just as the liberation of Israel was so rooted in history by the redeeming act of God, so the liberation of humanity from sin is grounded in the historic event of the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 instructs us to purge, clean out the old leaven, that you may be fresh, new dough, still uncontaminated as you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Indeed, Jesus is our Paschal lamb, and his last supper is, quote, a proclaiming act wherein the community in faith gives expression to the glorious and decisive significance of the death of Christ, end quote. That quotation is from G.C. Berkauer's book, entitled The Sacraments, on page 193, published by Erdmans in Grand Rapids, 1969. The Lord's Supper is a reminder that, on the same night in which he was betrayed, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, New King James Version, on the night before he was crucified, Jesus gave a solemn message to his disciples that they needed to remember. The bread and the wine are symbols of his body, which was about to be broken, and of his blood, which was about to be shed for the remission of sins. The death of Jesus was God's sole means for our redemption from sin. Lest we forget that the death of Jesus is heaven's provision for our salvation, Jesus ordained the Lord's Supper and commanded that it be kept until he returns, as 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24-26 through 26 recalls Jesus' words. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this to call me affectionately to remembrance. Similarly, when supper was ended, he took the cup also, saying, This cup is the new covenant, ratified and established in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, to call me affectionately to remembrance. For every time you eat this bread, and drink this cup. You are representing and signifying and proclaiming the fact of the Lord's death until he comes again. Jesus' assertion that his blood was to be shed for many for the remission of sins, Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, New King James Version, is to be remembered even to the end of history. To ignore this assertion and choose any other means of salvation is to deny God and his chosen method of salvation. Two crucial lessons of many lessons stand out. Christ died for us is the first lesson to be remembered at the table of the Lord. The second lesson is that we sit as one body because of that death, which has brought us all into one fellowship. Even as we sit at the table, we sit as Christ's redeemed community of the end time, awaiting the Lord's return. Until then, the table of the Lord is a reminder that history has meaning and life has hope. Friend, Christ gave his body and blood 
in order to give you the promise of eternal life. How can you personalize this amazing truth in a way that will constantly give you hope and assurance? Let's continue exploring. To eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ is to receive Him as a personal Savior, believing that He forgives our sins and that we are complete in Him. It is by beholding His love, by dwelling upon it, by drinking it in, that we are to become partakers of His nature. What food is to the body, Christ must be to the soul. Food cannot benefit us unless we eat it, unless it becomes a part of our being. So Christ is of no value to us if we do not know Him as a personal Savior. A theoretical knowledge will do us no good. We must feed upon Him, receive Him into the heart, so that His life becomes our life. His love, His grace must be assimilated. The book is entitled The Desire of Ages, written by Ellen G. White. That quotation is found on page 389. Here are a few life application thoughts and questions. 1. Think about the scenes in which Jesus cleansed the temple. In what ways do you put your faith and fidelity on sale. How can religion be used for profit, prestige, and position? More important, how can you make sure that you don't fall into the same deception? 2. Atheist writer Alex Rosenberg believes that all reality, all existence, is purely materialistic. That is, Everything can and must be explained through physical processes, and only physical processes. These processes are, of course, without design, goals, or purposes, or God. What is the purpose of the universe? he asks. There is none. What purposes are at work in the universe? Same answer, none. If, though, the meaninglessness and the purposelessness of the universe makes you depressed, Rosenberg warns against taking your depression seriously. Why? Because our emotions, including depression, are nothing but a specific arrangement of neurons and chemicals. And what's so serious about that? Rosenberg, however, does have an answer for those discouraged by the meaninglessness of their lives. Because depression is merely a particular configuration of neurons, simply rearrange the neurons, and you can do this with pharmaceuticals. He says, quote, If you don't feel better in the morning or three weeks from now, switch to another one. Three weeks is often how long it takes serotonin reuptake suppression drugs like Prozac, Welbutrin, Paxil, Zoloft, Celexa, or Luvox to kick in. And if one doesn't work, Another one probably will. End quote. The amazing thing about his answer is that he is serious. If depressed, 
take drugs. Contrast this view of life with what we believe regarding Jesus Christ and what he has done for us on the cross. Why, in a very real sense, is our participation in the Lord's Supper an open and defiant refutation of the nihilism and meaninglessness presented by Rosenberg and his atheism? ambassadorgroup.org This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.